Hey there, this is Jeff Benjamin along with my colleague Bruce Kelly for The Investment News Podcast. We got a lot on the uh, docket today to talk about. How you doing, BK? I'm doing good, Jeff. We got a, we, we're talking about a lot of fun things this week. We're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is a bad boy brokers bond. And we're going to talk about bond allocations, which those always make my mind spin uh, and some and some other topics. But uh, I saw you had a really great story this week about advisors uh, uh, confronting each other via social media. And we're coming up to this big election. And we had our, you know, the, the Democrats are having their convention this week and the Republicans are having theirs next week. So what motivated you to write this story and what did you find out? I saw during the opening night of the Democratic convention uh, a little bit of a back and forth turned into a little bit more of a dust up between uh, Carolyn McClanahan. She's a very vocal advisor on social media. She doesn't uh, she doesn't believe in filtering a lot of her political views. And she was called out by another advisor, Susan Moore, who basically said, I think I'm quoting directly, I'm sick of your comments. And uh, she suggested that she's going to try and uh, Press to get Carolyn off some of the industry panels that she speaks on, um, and that was kind of the part. That seemed that, a little. That seemed a little harsh. Yeah, that that sort of was the part that that <laughs> that kind of ticked people off. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth and ugliness on Twitter, as we all know. But there's a lot of fun too, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's all ugly, but um, yeah. So I love Twitter. There was a lot of comments following those comments, and then I talked to Carolyn. I couldn't get a hold of Susan Moore, but I did talk to uh, several other financial advisors who I know for a fact are have no problem expressing their political views on social media. And it, it kind of raises the question of these are financial advisors right. in their day job, if you will. And as a financial advisor, you know, you're a big part of your job is uh, re- recruiting and retaining clients. And in a hotly contested political climate like we seem to have had forever, is it important or is it even valuable to maybe potentially alienate some clients or potential clients by expressing your political views? And Carolyn seems to think that she doesn't care about that. I don't know what Susan's thoughts are. I, I did scroll through Susan Moore's uh, Twitter feed. and Yeah, she didn't she call you back. I read your story. and she's, No, and, and no, she, but she didn't also, her. she did one known, I didn't see any political comments right. on her Twitter feed. But uh, I did talk to some other people. No, but Carolyn is very liberal. Right. Yeah, she is. She's she's very liberal and she's not shy about expressing that. And, and you know, frankly, some of her comments are are a little rough. <laughs> she feels like, you know, that's her. And and that was kind of the interesting thing that I got out of this. Is yeah, this is fascinating. I think the advisors I talked to and I talked I, I specifically targeted or uh, spoke with advisors that I know are openly political on social media. And, you know, one of them, Paul Schatz, said, you know, I know it probably isn't the best strategy to express my political colors. He goes, but that's my personality and I can't help myself. I had other advisors that said, you know what, if we're supposed to kind of get beyond uh, the the superficial to get to know our clients and let them get to know us, what's wrong with it? There was one person that commented on my story. I mean, they commented with a, you know, a username, so I don't know who it actually is. Right. But they commented on my story online and said, when he or she, I don't know if it's a man or a woman advisor, found out that 
he had a female client who was a uh, Republican Trump supporter that he fired her. He terminated the relationship with her. So that was kind of interesting. But um, I did have some advisors that say they lost clients because of their political views. And they said, and I probably said I probably even lost or gained some clients because of my political views. But it, th- this is interesting, though. But just to, let's take a step back for a second. OK, this used to be the financial advice industry, which encompasses registered investment advisors, brokers, financial planners, tens of thousands of different types of advisors. Right. I think there's 300,000 licensed re- mm-hmm. people with FINRA who, who are FINRA registered who do retail security sales. Right. You know, again, I hate to always mention that we've been doing this for so long, Jeff, but 20 years ago, this was an overwhelmingly conservative business. I mean, it was in my experience when starting reporting at this, I wasn't a kid either. I was 35 when I started reporting on the financial advice business and had already had a decade long career as a school teacher. So I wasn't, you know, I was fairly, I had some experience Mm -hmm. in the world and it was a really, I was struck by how conservative the industry was. Um, It was very Republican. It was very, you know, pro George Bush, pro Iraq war. And I think the industry has changed and you do have people like Carolyn, who in the past, 20 years ago, it was odd enough to have a woman at advisor. <laughs> and then to have a very extroverted advisor who's also a woman and very politically liberal would never have flown 20 years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the conversation around Twitter has gone in the past 10 years from advisors saying, oh, how do I market myself on Twitter or Facebook? And now it's like they're saying, I don't care about marketing. I'm going to, there was quotes in your story, which I thought were great. I'm just going to I'm going to just going to go on Twitter and be me, you know? Yeah, well, that's the other thing that wasn't around 20 years ago was Twitter and social media. And right. even, you know, the Internet wasn't even developed to the way it was. Well, people had chat rooms. Yeah. People would go in chat rooms back then. Right. You but recall. you didn't go out there and just lay it all on the line and say, <laughs> this is what I think of your po- political beliefs and your political candidate and, you know, bleepity bleep bleep. And right. I mean, it's the Wild West out there and Twitter with their really loose and weak guidelines to keep everybody in check. It's basically a bare knuckle brawl. And most people kind of police themselves, but everybody has their own definition of what policing themselves is. And, And I also think part of this, when you have these people that are in a business of attracting a wide, broad universe of people, if you think if you want to be have financial advisory clients, I think a lot of the people that, that don't have a problem expressing their views when it's related to politics or other sensitive topics is I think they operate in some kind of an echo chamber where everything they they absorb is in line with their thinking. And you get kind of confused into thinking that everybody thinks that way. It's a dangerous well, thing. Well, that's too and, bad. <laughs> I think it was Socrates who said the unexamined life is is uh, not worth living, Right. Or the only thing I know is, you know, here on my deathbed is is that I know nothing. I mean, who would want to go through life like that? Uh, I I don't know. That's a little deeper than I thought we were going today, Bruce. I'm going I, deep, I'll give baby. You that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're 
you're you're going in there. But anyway, like I said, the you know, I talked to April Rudin, uh, right. kind of a, an her, industry her consultant on yeah. this stuff and marketing. And and she was saying, you know, there's no upside to it. Yeah. There, I mean, it might make you feel better. It's almost like, you know, flipping somebody the bird when you're riding in traffic. There's no upside to it. It might make you feel better. But the but down- you do that, Jeff. You you do flip the bird uh, at people when you drive around. Anyway, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I don't even know if you've ever even seen me in a car. Um, <laughs> but, but thanks for, uh, you know, making that accusation. Um, but uh, I can't flip the bird because my hands are always both hands yeah. on. 10 and 2. You know, 10 and 20. 10 and 2, yeah. Um, So anyway, the like April was saying, there's she doesn't see any upside. Right. You have a potential of alienating people, potential of making yourself look kind of ugly and a you know, and childish in a tit for tat on social media that everybody can read. So the downside is just all over the place. And the upside is like, you know, sometimes just go and scream into a pillow or something like that if you really feel like you need to vent it out there. Anyway, I mean, that's I, that's the way I kind of agree with that mindset. I, I, I will say I do like, you know, following it. It's entertaining to watch. Um, but you sometimes are just amazed at how how low people well, can the whole go point when they're that motivated. My impression of Twitter is that people engage in these types of dust ups that Carolyn McClanahan and was it uh, Susan Moore? Susan, Susan Moore. Moore had mm-hmm. in order to. Uh, promote themselves and get followers. That's the whole point of Twitter or Facebook is just to get more followers or likes or whatever. But I, I think what happened there was that it was personal a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, to have kind of this, that type of discourse, as April Rudin would say, in front of a crowd is one thing to have that kind of conversation off to the side of the room <laughs> privately is another. Yeah. Well, and that's another thing. If people had these conversations, if Susan Moore and Carolyn McClanahan met at a conference and found out that they had differing political views, it probably would end civilly. They would either decide that they don't want oh, to talk to each other. they'd have a glass of wine other. and laugh about yeah, it. Yeah, they'd either decide no. they don't want to talk about to each other because they don't like each other's political views or they would find a different subject or they might even open each well, other's they talk mind. about their kids. I mean, what, what are people – what do people do? They just talk about their kids or but their grandkids. But that's what social media does. Disney it it puts yeah. people behind this seemingly protective virtual wall and yeah. you feel like you can just, you know, throw Molotov cocktails over at people. And the fact is, it's what you're really doing is just getting in a big old public fight that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> but I thought your story really captured it nicely. It was a nice little piece of reporting. Yeah, there. it was fun to do. I was uh, I was telling one of the editors, I think the thing basically wrote itself. All I did yep. was put out some queries to people and they just started spilling back <laughs> at me. So that, those are fun ones to do. <laughs> we'll probably see more of that too, Bruce, because we got the Republican National Convention coming up next week. So. Oh boy. We should probably have Sheffy on next week, don't you think, oh, to talk yeah. about the two That's- conventions or something? That is a good idea. Yeah. Mark Sheff, our Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, yep. guru, spinning it all out there for us and telling us who's winning and who's losing and why. Well, he knows what these the platforms for both parties are and how they affect advisors yeah. narrowly and the financial services business yep. more broadly. I mean, the guy is so on top of his right. he, topic. He it's it's, a, it's great, incredible. Great perspective for our, for our audience of advisors. So what do we got next on tap, Bruce? Um, oh, oh, I know we're talking about advisor yeah, recruiting yeah. or uh, recruiting drop yeah, off, right? Yeah, every quarter, you know, we, we have a whole research team in the back of the old office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where we used <laughs> Where to go, remember the, the, the office? Old days. We're going to talk about the <laughs> office in a little while. 
Um, and these guys are great. Uh, yeah. Devin is the main guy I deal with. And um, every quarter they put together, the research team puts together a little analysis of where advisors have moved around in the industry, specifically from firm and to channel. Mm-hmm. And 2017 was recently kind of a peak of recruiting for broker dealers we're talking about for the most part. Yes. But as you would expect during the COVID, um, the first six months of the year really saw broker movement drop sharply. And this was widely Mm -hmm. believed to have that this was going to happen. Why is this happening? People don't get on planes and go to visits, you know? Yeah. They're not going to St. Petersburg to visit. The big thing with Raymond James is going to St. Petersburg and meeting all the, you know, Paul Riley and even meeting Tom James, the old man himself, you know, or mm-hmm. going to uh, Charlotte or San Diego and visiting the, the new Wizbang offices for LPL. And all that stopped during the COVID. Now, firms are trying to replicate that with Zoom and virtual meetings and, and the like, but recruiting activity is way down over the first half of the year. I'm just going to drop a couple of numbers. Okay. Something like 3,500 advisors moved in the first half, six months of, of 2020. That was down 23% compared to 2019 and down like 33, 34% compared to 2017, uh, which is the recent peak for brokers jumping right. around. Now, what, is it, what does that mean? It means firms that were planning on recruiting this year and making a big push for growth are going to have, you know, might have some hurdles here in seeing the business grow to the degree that they want it. Mm-hmm. Recruiting advisors is different than buying RIAs where we've seen a drop in RIA deals, and but an expected acceleration in the second half of the year. Um, recruiting brokers is, is, it's a different type of business. You're just not buying a practice you're kind of, the broker is kind of merging mm-hmm. <laughs> with the whole firm, in other words. Yeah. There's a lot of personal stuff and personalities and hands-on type of salesmanship that has to go on to get a broker to move. Right. What, did you say that the the peak was two years ago, so it did drop off last year too a little bit, A right? little bit, but not as sharply. The most recent peak was 2017. And like I said, there was something like 53, 5,400 moves in the first half of the year. Then that, then that uh-huh. dropped down by like 600 a year later and then like seven or 800 a year later. But this is almost 1,800 um, fewer yeah. people moving in the first half of the year. Do you, do you think that this creates some kind of a, like a bottleneck where we're going to see a whole bunch more moves when – and when this thing this ever is lifts? the thing, I still don't think people want to get on planes until there's a vaccine for for the coronavirus. Yeah. You know, and like I said, moving an office of brokers is very different from buying a uh, RIA where you just kind of like mm-hmm. you do the financing and you let the lawyers take care of it. You know, right. This is, you know, in, in broker dealers, it's, it's almost like the military. You have all these uh, branch managers and district managers and and regional complexes and mm-hmm. and the like. And you it's almost, you know, and everyone's like you have a, a, a captain and a major and a, and, a, and a lieutenant and a colonel, you know, and kind of going up the ranks. And all these people have to be involved in the process when you move from firm A to firm B, 
And it requires those face-to-face meetings. They have to get on planes for these things or? The big firms like Raymond James and others have said, we're going to do virtual recruiting. Mm -hmm. And definitely they were able to do it. They just can't, I just don't think they can replicate the pace uh, of it. Well, what happens if this goes on for a lot longer? This no vaccine, lockdown, everything's virtual. I mean, people aren't just going to stay at the warehouse if they don't want to be there. I just, I just think it's, it traditionally takes a broker six, eight, nine months okay. to make the whole, to go through the whole process of moving from one broker dealer to another. I think you're just going to see longer wait times. Mm. Brokers are still going to move. It's just going to take longer, maybe 10 months, okay. you know, 11 months, 12 months. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting, another, another trend coming out of this thing that uh, is likely to change maybe permanently. Uh, unless we get back to whatever normal was and it's, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't even use that word anymore. It's like, this is normal now. I Jeff, guess. the stock market hit, uh, you know, uh, the S&P 500, right? Hit a new peak uh-huh. this week. But you want to talk about bond allocations and this with zero interest rates, again, mm-hmm. re- replicating t- 2008, 2009, 2010. What should people, what are advisors saying about bond allocations? You know, does the old 60, 40 yeah, make that's sense a, it's a, anymore? It's an interesting trend and it's coming largely from, but not exclusively, younger advisors and many of their younger clients. The, I, the argument is if you have a client who's under the age of 40 and has a tolerance for risk that can handle a lot of the market volatility that you see in the stock market, there's not a good case for them to be in any fixed income, just equities and maybe some other. Not even uh, high grade corporate debt. You can still own a good corporate corporate bond fund, right? Especially not high grade corporate corporate, because what they're not getting is they're not getting the yield from these things. I mean, this isn't my argument, but this is the argument. Right. What's even, even advisors that are, that are still believers in, fixed income allocations, which normally historically would have been a balance of 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Generally, they're saying that 70-30 is the new 60-40. But it's very interesting. I mean, personally, I don't own a lot of bonds, but I don't own a lot of bonds because of the fact that I am looking for growth, even though I'm not a younger man. I'm not under 40, certainly. But um, I feel like I'm okay with that. And I've seen some extreme volatility, especially earlier this year. And I just said, that's what I, you know, that's what I paid for. But if you've got people, this is another thing about being a younger investor, thinking you can handle volatility. Everybody thinks they can handle volatility until they see the volatility. That's very true. The fear is that this mentality will push more people to the sidelines as soon as they see something that that shocks their system a little bit. But as we can tell right now, by the way, well, that the market dropping thirty five percent in a, in a, in five weeks or yeah. six weeks that didn't if that didn't get you, I don't know what. But <laughs> but things are pouring. I mean, the market rebounded, and people that see these rebounds, they they recognize the upward bias of the stock market. Right. And, you know, there we know that trading volume at platforms like Robinhood are at all the discount levels. brokers reported huge numbers in trades. Yeah. And then, you know, you talk about fixed income, the big the big firms like Morgan Stanley, they cleaned up with uh bond trading mm-hmm. in the in the second quarter, you know? Yeah. Cuz people were redoing their portfolios or rushing into bonds, you know, in some instances. Institutions yeah. most likely, not not like the retail investors you're talking about. 
Right. I talked to a couple of advisors that they'll use cash uh, instead right. of bonds because they say the safest bonds, the yields are so low, they're not that much better than money market funds. And money market funds are mostly FDIC right. insured. So that makes their clients feel right. better. It really is. It's almost like an old school versus new school type of mentality among advisors. A lot of the older advisors say, this is nuts. You don't buy bonds for the yield. You buy the bonds for the ballast. You buy the bonds to keep your portfolio from flying all over right. the place when all hell's breaking loose. Um, you buy it to you know hedge against deflation. You buy bonds for, for all kinds of reasons. But if you're just going for growth, uh, and you're comfortable with the fact that things like March can happen where the stock market will drop 30 percent in four weeks, then, right. you know, by all means do that. But it's a much bumpier ride. And the, the whole point of having financial advisors is to help you, you know, state the course and not have to be so freaked out that you're you're not able to stay invested. So it's very interesting. I don't think it's going away. Uh, I think bonds, as long as rates are as low as they are, will continue to be smaller percentages of client portfolios. But um, to just remove them completely is uh, it's you're at the mercy of a sometimes incredibly volatile equity market. That's for certain. So what we have on the docket next, Bruce, is uh, your favorite uh, brokers gone bad category. I know you uh, you love these uh, these tales of woe out there when you're identifying these uh, busted brokers. Yeah. And uh, we call them the bad boys, right? The bad boy brokers. And it's what the the, the trend that we've been picking up on really for the for maybe two or three years now, going back to 2018, mm-hmm. maybe 2017, 2018, is that. A lot of these guys who are now the subject of uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC fines or violations or state fines and violations like William Galvin up in Massachusetts, these guys are not registered brokers with FINRA or registered investment advisors with the SEC or with the states, but they used to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they they have like they, they work for a while in the as a licensed securities person under NASD, old NASD or FINRA or with the state or the SEC. And they kind of get out of that business, but they call themselves a financial planner and they have an insurance license and they sell annuities uh, and they're not CFPs as well, mm-hmm. but they sell insurance or they, they're CPAs or they're accountants. And then they start selling these kind of borderline risky products. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy down in Philadelphia we wrote about in my column this week, and he's basically a phony financial advisor. His name is Dean Vagnazzi. He's registered to sell insurance in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. He had like a cup of coffee in the in the broker dealer world like 12 or 13 years ago. He's a registered broker for six or seven months. Uh-huh. He got a cease and desist order from the SEC last month for selling around 30 million of life settlements to investors in the Philadelphia area and they were bundled together. So they were securities. So he was selling unregistered securities for a very high commission. And that can be really risky because you don't know if you're selling a security and you're not a licensed security salesman, you don't know what you're selling. You don't know how it's going to work. You're putting your clients potentially at a higher risk 
Um, life settlements are volatile. The people used to call them viaticals, right? Yeah. These are products that have a history of problems to them. Mm-hmm. And the ironic thing. They're life, they're life, they're insurance, life insurance policies, policies right? Yeah, they're on. Somebody else's somebody life else's insurance life policy insurance. that yep. you're buying, you're paying the premiums yeah. on. And so, and, and his, and Vagnasi, who's not a broker or CFP or anything, the, it's, it, the name of his firm, if you can believe it or not, is a better financial plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> a better financial plan. And, the, and he was marketing himself all over Philadelphia, too. I mean, I, I know some advisors down there pretty well because, uh, if you recall, uh, Nick Schorsch, the, the REIT czar, the former non-traded REIT czar, he was based in Phil. He was out of Philadelphia. So I got to know some people in Philadelphia uh, several years ago very well because I was covering Schorsch so closely. Mm-hmm. And these people, you know, you always stay in touch with people. And this Vagnazzi guy, a better financial plan, he was on the, you know, one advisor t- said to me something like, you know, I couldn't turn on the radio in the car to get the traffic without hearing about Dean Vignanzi, uh-huh. you know, and he's promising 10 to 14 percent returns. And my clients will call up and saying, why can't you promise me 14 percent? What's wrong with you, buddy? Mm-hmm. You know, and then he'd have to say, well, life settlements are not what you want. Now, the SEC hit him with a cease and desist order in the middle of July. He agreed to pay restitution of something like $490,000. And then two or three weeks later, Boom, the SEC drops another hammer on him for being involved with something called par funding, which is a whole other product type that he was selling, Uh which are basically high yielding, high interest loans to small businesses. Small businesses have gone belly up, right? Uh Because of the COVID. And so people don't even know how much money was raised in that thing. It could be hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially. Wow. Dean Vagnacci could have been a, a huge seller of that product too, potentially. We don't know for certain yet, but that's just what some of my sources are saying to me. So I always say to investment advisors, when you hear about these guys, give us a When you see something suspicious with these guys, like all this kind of marketing, and then he's not NASD, he's not FINRA licensed or something, just give us a call, you know, <laughs> we'll put them, uh, help put them on our radar. Yeah. Because these guys, you know, I... <laughs> They also, they call up the SEC, they call up FINRA, and too often have I heard stories of advisors calling FINRA and saying, hey, this this guy down the street is selling X, Y, and Z. You should look into him, and, and they get no response. The regulators just do nothing. Well, they're, so, they've got a big job, and there's a lot of brokers and advisors out there, and I, I advisors should would always have better be better served by at least also calling the media, if not only calling right. the media. But uh, you can't only call the regulators. Call the No, call, call the Jeff or press. call me. Because we, <laughs> yeah. you know, from uh, your old friend Dawn Bennett, right? <laughs> to <laughs> to Dean Vignazzi. I mean, these guys, um, once they get their hooks into a certain group of people, it's called affinity fraud. Uh-huh. Through a church or through a social group or through an ethnic background or something. Yeah. I mean, they can run through them like a COVID virus, man. They can do a lot of destruction. Good to hear you're on that, Bruce. I'm sure you're going to let us know how that thing ends up with our Mr. Is it Vagnazi? Vagnazi. Dean Vagnazi is his name. Just a phony broker, but selling securities, you know, and advertising all over the place like you wouldn't believe. 
So what do we got in our open notebook this week, Bruce? It's, it's something interesting. You know, we were talking about <laughs> a Twitter war yes. between Carolyn McClanahan and Susan Moore, right? And then I tweeted out something this week, and I'm very conservative on Twitter. I just, you know, retweet articles or retweet, mm-hmm. you know, baseball stuff or rock and roll stuff or whatever. You know, images of the Beatles or something. The Hey Jude came out on this date, you know, 50 years ago or whatever it is. Yes. I love all that stuff. But I just, you know, I've been, I'm a New Yorker. Yeah, we know. New York. Grew up, I was born here, grew up in the Burbs, moved here after college, 1988. Uh-huh. So I've been here 32, 32 years, raising my kids here. Right. And in various periodicals, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, I'm just reading all these stories about how New York is dead, right? <laughs> so I tweeted out to all, to all these people saying New York is is dead nonsense, BS, get over it. That's it. That's a tweet. Yeah. And I got like a dozen likes or f- 15 likes and replies and, yeah. you know, but then <laughs> the argument is to be taken seriously. And you and I talked a little bit about this beforehand. And the argument is because yeah. everybody can work remotely now, it gets back to COVID. The, the city's on its, the city is hurting. Yep. There's no doubt that New York City is hurting because of the pandemic and what it's done to the economy. Right. And because people can work remotely, you can be a high wage earner and not have to work in the office, come to the office five days a week mm-hmm. and work at Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Fidelity, take your pick. Mm-hmm. And this is going to destroy the tax base for the city. And as you and I said, you know, New York City is a high tax place, definitely. But I think you get something in return for your taxes. Namely, you get you get a lot of cops. We have the most police, I think, than anywhere. And we have like 40,000 police officers mm-hmm. in, this, in the city, something like that, 30, 40,000. It's, it's an incredible amount. You see them all over the place. Right. Even with in the wake of the protests and everything like that. And you get really good schools. Yeah, we have some crummy schools, but if you're – you know, if you know how to play, work the system, play the system in New York City, you you can wind up getting your kid into a darn good school. Mm-hmm. And I have two kids who are entering high school this year. So I'm OK. So I was just sick and tired of everyone saying, right, he's dying. It's dead. It's dead. It's dead. <laughs> and you called me adorable. You said, oh, that's so adorable. Bruce. Yeah. No, I uh, <laughs> uh, I said your optimism is adorable, Bruce. Um <laughs> Because, uh, because uh, you know, it's again, it's the the new. I hate to say new normal, but I'm going to have to say it again, because it's the it's the new reality that we're dealing with here, and we don't have any end in sight for this thing. We don't, and that's another story that I'm working on right now. All these giant financial services firms and just giant companies that have so much expensive office space in all these big cities. They're already it's this has gone on long enough that they're re- reevaluating how much office space they really need. Oh, yeah. And how many of their employees that have been working from home for six or whatever months it's been are now going to say, well, you know, if we're operating at basically full capacity without having anybody in the office, how much office space do we need? Maybe some of these people do not want to work in an, or do not want to work at home. That might be the majority of people. But if you can cut your office space by 30 percent, 25 percent, that's a big deal. And it does hurt places like New York, where if you don't have as much foot traffic and automobile traffic going through there, a lot of the businesses get hurt. You lose the tax base. 
for people like you, though, that are never, ever going to leave, that should be an advantage of maybe you get some lower rents for your apartments and things like that. Or you're, you know, you're I'm sure you got like a like a mansion you're living in, but maybe you can get it for a little little cheaper. And, you know, I, it seems like there ought to be some upside to it. But, yeah, it's a it's a real thing that it doesn't surprise me that people are realizing if you don't have to live somewhere maybe you could, you know, still keep your job and go somewhere. New York city is an incredibly expensive place to Uh, live. I don't. So particularly if you are one of these, you know, Mm -hmm. top earners that are quoted in these profiles, Mm -hmm. in that case, you can, you can afford to live anywhere, you know? Right. (laughs) So, okay, go ahead and live anywhere. I still think that the city is going to be a hub for young people, for people in the arts, for theater, for restaurants, for music, for all that stuff. But yeah, Midtown Manhattan is definitely going to take a hit, man. And I, we were talking about this the other day. I think, yeah. you know, companies could lose 50% of their office space in the coming years and not even blink. Well, we were even talking about our office space, Investment News. I mean, I've we been there a few times. really yep. anybody in there. You went in there, I think, for a day and there might have been... Okay, but yeah, you know that's a full empty floor. It's just sitting there, and, and it's just not our floor. It's the whole gonna, building. When I when I've gone into work, into into Midtown Manhattan, there's there, there's nobody in the building, <laughs> right? And that's just one building. I mean, I'm, I don't think anybody's suggesting that New York's going to stop being the financial center of the world or anything like that. But it's just going to be maybe a lot less people there, a lot, lot less people working and living there. I think it's just going to change. Things are going to change. And, you know, it'll be interesting to watch. And, you know, there are ups and downs to it, upsides and downsides to it. I mean, but but once again, once we get past this, I mean, New York City, there's so many facets to it. Right. mm -hmm. So once we get past COVID, people are going to want to (laughs) party. And tourism, right, is going to come back. So where are people going to go? They're going to go to places like New York. And party, man, because that's what tourism is a huge industry in New York City. So to call New York dead, like some of these people have in in various articles that that I've read, I just I just find it a little insulting. That's all. All right. Duly noted. Hey, Jeff, that was a great podcast. (laughs) Yes, it was. I heart New York. <laughs> so hey, if it's Monday, that means it's uh it's time for another episode of the Investment News podcast. You got that. You can find it all over the place, Jeff. All over the place. Yes. Investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Give us a review. You know, write something uh, on Twitter and say, hey Jeff, hey Bruce, uh, we want your feedback. Jeff Benjamin, his Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder, and mine is at Meaty News Guy. So that's it for now. We'll be talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.